Lord, we want that to be true of our hearts and our minds that we really believe that we don't need anything but you. And um, we can argue that we need air, we need food, we need shelter. How can we say we don't need anything but you? But it's when we recognize that all those things come from you. And we're created by you, through you, and they were even made for you. We breathe for you. We eat and survive and live and move for you. And so truly, you are our only need, the sovereign Christ who holds all things together. And we ask that in this Christmas season, we wouldn't miss you, our Savior. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you about the power of numbers. Uh, I read a tragic story that occurred on a, on a rather small island. Um, while the natives were preparing for a yearly festival that they would celebrate annually, 2,000 crazed island natives uh, assembled to crash a barricaded door. They didn't have weapons, they didn't have knives, guns, they didn't have tools even, they, but they did have numbers. And just like an army that you know, strikes before dawn while it's still dark, uh, these natives gathered when the sun was not yet out that morning. The people behind the barricaded doors, the people that barricaded the doors, even formed a human chain to try to... to so like, hey, you're not going to get through here that easily. They even hired men for protection. Professional professionals that, that made a living out of securing situations like this. Um, and professionals that were paid to dismantle natives who threatened uh, basic civility. But none of that, the barricade, the, the hired men, none of that worked. There came a point where the fearful barricaders, they just had to open the doors. They were breaking anyway. They were almost literally coming apart. And the flood of people charging in broke through the human chain. And one man about my age was trampled and crushed by the wild crowd. The yearly festival that they were preparing for was Christmas. The island was Long Island, New York. The barricaded doors belonged to a Walmart. And the crazed crowd was a drove of wild shoppers competing for first dibs on discounted items. The date was Black Friday of 2008. And it was black indeed. Remember when my wife read the story and she forwarded me the article in the Daily News and I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm all about saving a buck. But trampling a man to death? I mean, a young, healthy guy. I believe he was 31 years old. Employees were jumping on top of the vending machines to save their lives. The ambulance workers that moved in to try to revive the man were getting trampled. And he died about an hour later that morning. I think it's a story that illustrates uh, many things about our society, but I want to focus on one thing in particular. 
And that's one thing that Jesus made abundantly clear in his ministry. And it's a warning. And you find that in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. If you turn there with me, we'll read it together. And behold, Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And here you have a man who has great possessions. He has many things, lots of money, lots of stuff, lots of material goods. But there's something bothering him. We know that because he says, what do I, what do, I do to have eternal life? He, he already is thinking, I, he, he senses the reality that he does not have eternal life. And that when this life is over of spending, grabbing, and accumulating stuff, when this life is over, he, he still doesn't have the grand prize. He knows it. So he asks Jesus, hey, how do I get eternal life? Jesus kind of senses the fact that this guy doesn't get that eternal life is through him, the person. So that's why I asked him, why do you call me good? You know there's only one that's good, right? In other words, are you saying I'm Messiah? Or are you just asking me like I'm a rabbi? And Jesus kind of just lets that hang there for a minute, and then he goes into it, and he says, well, here are some of the commandments. Obey your mother and father, you should not kill, you should not commit adultery. Love your neighbors, yourself. Maybe the guy cut him off and just says, listen, listen, I've done those things. I've done those things. Um, What do I still lack? See, he still knows. He wasn't going, oh, I, I did those things, check, okay. No, he knows he's lost. He knows he's lost. But he's looking at the list that Jesus is giving him. He's going, no, I, I got that. I got that. But what do I still lack? What do I still lack? And so Jesus explains to him. He said, if you're going to be perfect, take everything that you possess, give it to the poor, and come follow me with this band of poor people. And without a response, he just turns away sad because he knows, I can't have eternal life. I can't have eternal life because in order to grab eternal life, I've got to let go of the temporal life. And I can't because I worship the temporal life. I can't grab God because I grab money. And Jesus is saying, if you want to really grab a hold of God, let go of this other God that you worship. And he walked away sad because he just admitted to himself that he can't. And so his question was answered. And he sees how he can attain eternal life. You have to become perfect as the Father is perfect. God has to so radically change you that Jesus is truly 
the first in the first place. He's truly king. And this guy had two kings vying for the same throne of his heart. And the king in charge was stuff. Things. Riches. As Matthew puts it, great possessions. What's odd about this passage is it sounds like Jesus is teaching you could be saved by works. You know, keep these commandments and you'll have eternal life. But that's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's demonstrating to him that he can't keep the commandments. He gives them some easy ones. Obey your mother and father, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, yeah, I've done those things. And Jesus probably could have challenged him, wait, have you always done those things perfectly every time? No. But he didn't want to pin him there. He wanted to get to the heart of the issue. This is not about mom and dad. It's not about loving his next door neighbor. It's about something deeper. This guy worships the stuff that he has. So he thought, okay, you can obey some of the Ten Commandments, but you missed the first one. Have no other gods before me. You missed that one. Out of the two greatest commandments, love God with your all and love neighbor as yourself. You say you've got the second one, but what about the first one? Love God with all of your mind, your soul, your strength. No, nothing else is pulling away from your, 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 your unified love, passion for God. Wait, he misses that one because his God is his stuff. So Jesus isn't teaching him that if he does a bunch of checklists, he can make it. He's using the checklist to show him that he doesn't make it by far. And that a sign of true internal change, God's really got a hold of you. It's when stuff does not have a hold of you. Jesus is not teaching it's wrong to have things. He's saying it's wrong for things to have you. He's not saying dump a bunch of stuff because having stuff is bad. No, he's saying you need to dump a bunch of stuff because that stuff has you and that's bad. I mean, he has great possessions, but ironically, those great possessions possess him. They're his God. You see, you and I are created to worship something, ourselves or, or someone or a figure or an idol. We're designed to worship God and we replace him with something else. We, we know that. We talk about that. It's infused in so many sermons and devotionals. But, but we, we get confused when we live in a society where a man will get trampled by a crowd diving for a vacuum that has $30 off. Now, you and I didn't do that, but let me just let me just make a point. I'm willing to bet you that none of those guys saw a dude on the ground and said, look at that guy, I'm going to stomp him a couple times before I get to the vacuum. I bet you somebody said, oh, I'm about to step on this guy, and they wanted to move out of the way, but they couldn't because the people behind them pushing them on top of the guy. The people behind them pushing him on top of the guy weren't saying, look, there's a guy, let me push this person on top of him so I could kill him. Maybe they don't even see the guy, but they're pushing. See, it wasn't murder because the intent wasn't, here's a guy, let's kill him. What killed that man was consumerism. What killed that man was materialism. I don't want you to leave here thinking, you know, pastor is against shopping in crowds or anything like that. But I've got to tell you, if we just blindly take part in a societal system that victimizes employees for a buck, we do have a problem. And I think part of our issue is that we look at Donald Trump, we look at 
Bill Gates. We look at big wigs downtown that own high rises. You know, they own Fortune 500 companies and go, this passage is for them. Really? I mean, do you have to be that rich for stuff to have you instead of you just having stuff? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's a shame that many people are nowhere near as rich as probably this guy was, and they would still have to walk away sad because they cannot give up the pursuit of fame or the pursuit of things or the pursuit of stuff. You know, a lot of us all have issues and, and uh, problems on different levels. And sometimes they become exacerbated and they become uh, psychological strongholds. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me about a show called Hoarders. And it's like these people that they collect and they collect and they collect. Sometimes they collect one specific item, but most of the time they just collect things. They can't throw away the sweater that doesn't fit anymore. They can't throw away the dish that's broken. They can't throw away dirty diapers. They can't throw away dirty diapers. It was on my son. I don't know what the psychology is. I probably could never be a psychologist because at some point I just go, what, what if I just slap you? Will that stop? No. <laughs> it's hard to understand what's going on behind the mind that collects dirty diapers. But like most psychological and emotional issues, they're exacerbated, they're exaggerated, but if you trace it down to a core problem, we all kind of share these things. There's something inherent in us that wants to collect, to conquer, to have stuff. And it's easy to feel like we don't suffer from it when we look at the person next door and they suffer from it worse. And we go, well, I don't have the problem. I think, I think many times we do. We do. We do. We have that pull toward allowing things to possess us. Jesus wanted to show this guy that he didn't just possess many things. Those things possessed him. You know, in the intro of the sermon, I said that the story reminds me of the power of numbers. And in one sense, I was referencing the number of people, 2,000 people crashing into a Walmart at the same time. On another level, I meant numbers in terms of money, numbers in terms of discounts, numbers in terms of how many Bissell vacuum cleaners I can grab off the shelf before anyone else does, numbers in terms of how many coupons were clipped in order to crash those doors, numbers in terms of how many things I want to have this Christmas and how many things I'll have after this Christmas is over. You and I know that when we look at little ki kids interact with each other, they say, they say the darndest things. They say the same things you and I want to say, but they just don't have the filter yet. They do the same things you and I want to do. They just don't have the filter yet. Two little kids will play, I had it first. I had it first. No, it's mine. And we say, stop it. The kids are so silly. Really? Then when it snows and you put little chairs and buckets and stuff barricading the parking lot that I shoveled out. That's my spot. Or when you're pulling into that crowded mall and someone else has their blinker and then you get in first and then they're like, hey, that was my spot, I had the blinker. You didn't. Mine. We, 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 have it, you know, we have it deep down and we get civilized about it, but it's in there. And I'm reminded 
a person recently that, that was sharing with my wife that last Christmas their kid said, opened up the last present and said, that's it? What a shame, little kids. Well, what is the kernel that prompts the child to say that that still exists in you and I? The desire for more, the desire for things, the, the want for stuff. I think it's there. So Jesus makes a, a simple but profound point. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. What's wrong is when the stuff has you. Look at how the verses continue. Verse 23, Jesus turns to his disciples. Okay, the guy, the young ruler, he walked away. And Jesus turned to his disciples. He said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Notice again. He's not saying, truly I say to you, rich people will never be able to enter the kingdom of God. He said only with great difficulty. It's so difficult. Now he uses a hyperbole, an exaggeration. Okay, Imagine a camel trying to be squeezed through the eye of a needle. Now some scholars commentators say, well, the eye of a needle was actually a gate in the outside. But a lot of other commentators say, no, there was no such gate. Jesus is talking about a needle that you would use to thread and sew. And he's talking about a camel that when they were, Jesus was saying it, you probably looked around and you see camels everywhere. Using an exaggerated example. Imagine trying to take a camel through the eye of a needle. Impossible. It's impossible. He says that's how difficult it will be for someone who has a bunch of stuff to get into heaven. The reason why is because it's so easy for us to worship stuff. And if we worship someone else or something else instead of God, you're not a Christian. How can you have eternal life if Christ is not number one in your life? And so when you were four years old and you went to a day camp and you said a prayer in mass with 30 other kids and you say, you marked it in your Bible, that's the day I was saved. But your life is defined by being pulled away from God, disconnection from God, and really at the end of the day you worship stuff. If you were asked to give up your stuff for the kingdom, you'd have a hard time. You'd walk away sorrowful with your head hanging down because at that point you would realize, I said a prayer, but I don't know Christ. You can't worship both. And so he explains that riches are not wrong. It's not wrong to be rich, but riches pose a very real danger to you. I'm not talking about a danger like your insurance is going to go up the more stuff you have. No, no. I'm talking about da- I'm talking about the danger of losing your opportunity to have eternal life. I mean, they're not quibbling back and forth about just religious things. The question is eternal life. Are you saved? Do you know Christ? And he's saying if people that have stuff controlling them can't make, take that step of faith. And so riches, things, material is not evil, but they increase the difficulty of your ability to worship. They vie for 
the throne of your heart that only Christ should occupy. The disciples, <laughs> they were incredulous. Look at what they say in verse 25. The disciples heard this, the whole thing about the camel and the eye and the needle and how you know difficult it is. Who then can be saved? Now hold on, let's pause a second. I, If I were writing the story, which I'm glad I didn't, if I were writing the story, the disciples would have said, hey, that's good news for us. We're poor. We're, we poor. You know? I mean, we, we, we were already poor before we gave up the fishing gig to follow you. Now forget it. We're following a guy that's homeless. We're following a guy that owns nothing. We're following a guy that's ridiculed by half the town. His own town rejects him. He has, to, he has to bum rides off people. He has to go door to door and, hey, can I stay here tonight? He, he depends on people inviting him. Why don't you stay with us tonight and feeding him? Otherwise, we'd starve. I mean, I mean one time we were in the, in, the, in the fields picking grain to eat on the Sabbath. That caused a big problem. And so I would think that these guys would say, whew, it's so hard for rich people to get into heaven. That means mean it's easy for me to get into heaven. I'm not rich. But instead, look at the response. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? What is that? I think that's the disciples recognizing we don't have as much as that guy. But if having things and, and, and succumbing to the lure of having stuff pulls you away from being able to have eternal life, then who of us can survive? And say, so you and I with our, with our fancy cars and the radio and the, and the cable TV and all the things that we have that here is commonplace. Washer and dryer. I mean, to us, this, this is just basic necessity of life, but, but we have things other people in the world would dream of having. We have the, there's luxury. Ooh, it's cold. A couple clicks of a button, you have heat. Oh, so hot. A couple clicks of a button, you have AC. Ah, oh, I'm hungry. Drive through a drive through in five minutes you have a five course meal. It's not good for you, but you have it. <laughs> and I think the disciples are realizing, wait a minute, we, we may not be as rich as this guy, but we all fall into that trap. How then can any of us be saved? That's not possible. Because we're, we're always going to have stuff. There's always going to be things that pull us away from, even if you give up everything, there's still going to be the things that you, you, that you enjoy in life, whether it be food or shelter or whatever. There's things that pull away from our attention and focus on God. In that sense, it's impossible for anyone to be saved. And I'm really thankful for the following verses. Jesus says, he looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. Don't miss it. This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God is so powerful. God's grace is so amazing. He can take a fully grown camel, two, three, six humps of a mutant freak of a camel and stick it through the smallest eye of a needle you could find at Hobby Lobby. God can do it. That's how awesome he is. See, the focus shifts from what we're able to do to get into heaven to just recognizing, I can't. 
We should all walk away like that rich young ruler with their heads hanging down, realizing, I can't have eternal life. That's right where Jesus wants you. Maybe we'll see this guy in heaven one day. Maybe eventually after the cross, after the resurrection, maybe he was one of the 3,000 that came after Peter's first sermon. We don't know. But we all have to come to a point where we hang our heads down and go, I, I, I'll always worship something else. But with God, it's possible that he does such an inner working that you can have things and not be controlled by the things that you have. As impossible as it seems, God can do that. We're saved by his power, by his grace. It's God's power to overcome the lure of having. God gives us what we need in order to have things without letting those things have us. That's from God. Um, This passage finishes with a couple of verses that are, uh, are powerful. Verse 27, if you read with me. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold And will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. Again, I'm glad I didn't write this. Because if it were something I wrote and made up. I would have said. They said. uh, We left everything. Now what do we get? And then Jesus would have (laughs) said. You completely missed the picture. You shouldn't have things. No, but he doesn't. He says, here's the truth. If you give up temporary stuff now, you'll enjoy eternal stuff later. And he's not just talking about esoteric feelings like joy and peace and happiness and a sort of wispiness. And a, Those things are true. And those things are, are crucial and primary. But he also talks about Actual reward. Jesus is going to sit on an actual throne, and they're going to sit on thrones and rule and, and, and actually judge. They're going to have responsibility. That's the 12 disciples. We don't import that to us. But then verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold of what? Of those kinds of things. Things that we enjoy. God created us to enjoy stuff in the context of enjoying him first. We're broken and we're fallen, so we replace God with the stuff that he's blessed us with. He's saying, I'm not going to just say, no more blessings for people. He's saying, ignore the blessings now. Don't let them control you now, so that in the next life you can enjoy them appropriately. And I find it amazing that he says, everyone who has left And he doesn't just say money or things or houses, but brothers and sisters, mother and father or children. Some of you parents have a hard time letting your children walk away because you're drawing a line in the sand and you say, this is what Jesus says. And you know that caused a problem between you and your kids. 
Jesus says, don't erase the line just to have a nicer Thanksgiving dinner. You leave mom, you leave dad, you leave kids. For what? For Christ's sake. And I, I want to draw this, this, this picture. He says, everyone who has left these things for my sake. He's not saying be simple, have less things for the sake of being simple and having less things. He's saying do that in order to have me, in order to worship me, do it for my name. Uh, this is for the sake of Christ. I think some people are just naturally frugal. This has nothing to do with spiritual discipline. They just pinch pennies. They want the discounts. They buy the cheapest clothing, cheapest house, cheapest car. They want to save money. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying some of us are naturally spenders. Some of us are naturally frugal. He's not saying, I want everybody to be, be generous, but when it comes to yourself, be as cheap as possible. We all have to become like that. I don't think that's what he's saying. Because if that's what he's saying, we would have to become uh, people who enjoy not having things. People who, uh, they hate clutter so much, they just get rid of everything. Somebody was telling me recently uh, that his wife, uh, if you leave something out for more than five seconds, it's in the trash. I mean, it's in the trash. You have to say, honey, I'm putting this here, and this is something that I want to belong here. I want it to be a part of here. And then they'll have a discussion whether that looks like clutter or not. But she is a human vacuum, will take your stuff and throw it in the trash, and you don't have your stuff because it wasn't put away, and it made the house look like clutter. Some of us have a natural inclination to not want to have things. Jesus isn't saying, everybody become like that person. Because the reason why that person does it is for themselves. It bothers them to have clutter, so they get rid of the stuff. It bothers them. They have a, a, a maybe they, they hate the notion of being rich, snobs, uh, luxury cars, or maybe they wanna, they wanna uh, save more trees and, and, and they're into the global warming and all this stuff, and so now they become real simple people because they're worshiping the planet. Or worshiping themselves because they don't like ritzy stuff. Or they just so don't want to look like a snob that they're going to have a, a, a life of simple living so that no one can mistake them for a rich snob. All of those reasons, I don't necessarily have a, a problem with except worshiping the planet, which is an exaggeration. But they're, they're, they don't have Christ in it. They're not doing it for Jesus. They're doing it because that's how they're wired. Jesus is saying, I don't want you to give it up because it's easy for you to give it up. I want you to give it up and let go of these things. Let these things not have you, control you, for my sake. And I think that's a crucial difference. It's not about becoming a person who doesn't like nice things. It's about forsaking them for a purpose greater than yourself. It's for Jesus and his mission. Now, I just want to take a couple minutes to get a little bit practical with you guys. Um, with that theology in mind, it's not wrong to have things, but it's so easy for things to have you that Jesus is saying, warning, warning, warning. You live in a consumerist, materialistic, idle, iconic driven society. Do not succumb to it. Do not replace me with something else. 
Do not miss the purpose of Christmas because it has become a consumerism holiday. Now that we have that grid, how do we approach not only Christmas, but life? Um, I want to commend two books to you. One is Simple Living by Jose Habde. She's a Native American. She's Christian. Um, she's not the greatest writer. You're not going to read this and put it on the shelf next to C.S. Lewis. But um, she has some insightful challenges to the way we live in Western culture. She challenges in, in a heart. If, if some of you have read Crazy Love by Francis Chan, this is kind of in, in line with that. This, this sort of, oh, what if we let go of stuff for once and follow Jesus wholeheartedly? Her main premise is that if you, if you uncrowd your life with things, you have more room for prayer and for people. And so it's a short read. Some of the things will make you kind of scratch your head, but on the whole, I think she really unpacks the discipline of simplicity, what, what Christian theologians call the discipline of simplicity. Um, so I commend that to you. It's called Simple Living. And these books, both of the books that I'm talking about now are on the website. If you go to under sermons, there's book recommendations. You can click there and find where to get it. I think it's only like $5. On Amazon. The second one we talked about last year, and we actually did a four part sermon series on it. This isn't the book, this is the DVD, but The Advent Conspiracy. And we're going to kind of be talking about this a little bit for the next few weeks, um, not necessarily in the sermons. But this, The Advent Conspiracy, is uh, three pastors that got together and were just tired of Christmas being robbed and hijacked by shopping spending, going into debt, getting the obligatory gifts, have a get-together, a white elephant, everybody bring a gift. Everything is so stuff-centered that we miss Christ. And so what they did is they put together a, a book, they wrote a book and then did a DVD series based on it, um, consisting of four parts. The first one is to worship fully. This Christmas we need to worship Fully. And that just goes in line with this. This guy is saying, how do I have eternal life? He's saying, you can't worship me because you worship something else. Do we worship stuff or do we worship Christ? Worship fully. And the second two go hand in hand. Spend less, give more. Spend less, give more. They're, these pastors are really concerned that when we go into January of the next year, Christians all over the country are going into debt because they had to keep up with the Christmas traditions of getting everybody a gift and spending. And you don't want to look cheap. And they bought me this price-level gift, so I've got to get them a price-level gift. And maybe some of it get so concerned about it, we keep tabs. They bought me this. Let me go online. How much was that? Ooh, that was 50 bucks. I can't get them this. It's only 20 bucks. Let me. It's, it's based on stuff and things. And so what they're saying is, what if, what if we... Spend less so that we don't go into debt, which the Bible warns us about. Don't, don't go into debt. Um, and what if we give more in more imaginative ways? What if we give more relationally? Uh, time, a gift certificate for a free babysitting night so you guys can go on a movie date and, and we can babysit or something. And the reason why I use that example is because that would be awesome if I get a bunch of those uh, this Christmas. 
and you can look at the website online and online they have a whole form of people putting ideas there. How can we give in ways that maybe we could spend a little bit less? I do want to add a caveat uh, that somebody brought to my attention and it's true. Sometimes the appropriate gift is an expensive gift. I, I don't think these guys are trying to say never buy anything expensive. They're just saying, you know, you just go down the list and like I got Tommy Frank Sally and, and, and Joe, let me go to the mall last minute. And, uh, how about a sweater? How about a this? How about that? And the only reason why I'm grabbing those things is because they match the price point that that family member is worth to you. You give your neighbor fruitcake, $5. You give your spouse a necklace, you know, $500, whatever. I don't know, just price points per person. What if, what if we use our imagination so that everything didn't have to cost so much money? We don't have to get the newest, shiniest thing on the shelf in order to express gift-giving Christmas season. Jose Habde says that in, Native American, in some Native American cultures, they do not wrap a gift because they, they feel like that adds to the mystique and the awe of the gift instead of the gift-giving. And they also, in Native American cultures, understand that if you give me a gift, I might enjoy it for a while, and then I might give it to someone else. And that first party does not get offended their joy is increased knowing that someone else now gets to enjoy it. I think you and I, we, you re-gifted my gift. Yeah, I, I just didn't like it. I'm sorry. I hate you. No. Um, when I read that, I said, that sounds totally made up. I can't even conceive of like, thank you. I'm going to enjoy this for a couple weeks and then give it to somebody else. Oh, that's so great. That seems so bizarre to me that I find it hard to believe that they do that in some Native American cultures. Um, spend less, give, give more. Maybe the kids could take one less toy. And you could just take a weekly walk with them for a month. I don't know, I'm, I'm just making it, but building into them relationally. Then they come home and like, Mom, Mom, Dad took me and we went hiking and we had sticks. Zero dollars, eternal impact. Is that what Christmas is about? Or is it about, I got three G.I. Joes, but there's still two left that I got to collect. The commercials collect all six, you know, whatever. Worship fully, spend less, give more, love all. That last one, love all, is if we together can lower the focus on ourselves, we can raise the focus on those who can't even celebrate Christmas. Because they don't have anything. And what the, the organization that they promote and that we, that we uh, gave money to last year is Living Water International. It's a Christian organization that teams up. They're not missionaries, but they team up with local churches and missionaries in places around the globe that do not have clean water. Uh, the mortality rate is high because they have dirty water. They drink it. They get disease. They die. Uh, they, they just don't have pumps. They don't have wells. And so money is brought, experts are brought in to build uh, a pump and a well uh, to, to tap into clean water for the village. And so what we're going to do is uh, I want to challenge all of us again, uh, for those of you that were here last year, um, to think of ways when we look at our budget to not have to go all out on the money spending and maybe go up a little bit more on more relational ways of giving or imaginative ways, creative ways of, of giving so that we can save some money and we take some of what was saved and okay, Johnny doesn't have 
the second G.I. Joe, but somebody else is going to get a cup of clean water. And we can, we can talk about this as families, like, hey, let's, let's go on the website, Living Water International, look at some of the videos in some of these villages and how they were blessed by clean water. And over the next few weeks throughout December, we'll have specially marked envelopes so that you can uh, write out whatever you do for the church, but whatever you feel like you're saving or you're kind of setting aside specifically for fulfilling that, that love all aspect of Christmas. Not just loving our family underneath the tree, and, and, but the missional aspect of Christmas. That was a mission. Jesus coming down to save people, to help people, uh, to get the word of the gospel out to communities that will listen because we provided clean water. That's awesome. Um, and so we want to give sacrificially in that regard by lowering what we normally spend on ourselves. Um, I want to take a, a moment to pray. Um, as we close in worship, um, I want us to really think about what Jesus really calls us to in Matthew 19. That it's not about rich people out there somewhere. Like the disciples, we have to ask, how do we possibly apply this? How can we possibly get through Christmas without being selfish brats? With man, this is impossible, but with God, it's possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, um, that we get to celebrate Christmas, that there's a time in the year where, you, where the name of your Son is everywhere. It's in songs, it's on the radio, and while it may be ignored, while people are just sort of inoculated to it and don't even realize what they're hearing or seeing, some of them, Lord, do realize what it is, and they want it out of the airports, off the store windows, no Merry Christmas, you have to say Happy Holidays, Lord. There definitely is an attack. But for most of us, Lord, it's not the attack, it's just how familiar we've become with it all. And we don't sense the, uh, the vacuum of the society that we live in centering around money, and material things. So Father, help us to realize that we could, we could offload all the things we want at the end of the day, still worship things. Uh, help us to come to a place where we're so, uh, so in awe of you, so in love with you, Father, that we can have things, we cannot have things. In both cases, we'll be content because we worship you. Lord, help us to, to live in this society and be ambassadors of what it means to belong to an eternal life rather than worshiping temporary things. Help us to do that this Christmas, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.